0: Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com.
1: Arc Investment Management LLC is an SEC registered investment advisor. Arc and public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, Arc disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs all statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by arc and or show guests and are not endorsements by arc of any company or security or recommendations by arc to buy sell or hold any security historical results are not indications of future results Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on Arc's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. Arc assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. Arc and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that Arc believes to be reliable. However, Arc does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party.
0: Welcome to episode 35 of The Brainstorm. We're talking AI, AI spending, and why drugs are so expensive in the US. Brett, we'll start with you and the news going around of $7 trillion for AI chips for Sam Altman. Um, Is that a reasonable number? Why is that happening? Why now?
2: Uh, My first um, read of the headline was like, oh, they totally, they meant billion. Uh, And then no, they meant trillion. And I think we should caveat this that he is at least quasi denied that he has entered these discussions. But the general news is that he's approached some Middle Eastern funders and asked for five to seven trillion dollars to build a giant uh, chip making facility, presumably in the Middle East. Um, And thinking about it, actually, that's about the right scope that we need uh, given our expectations for AI hardware requirements. So, Um, you can think about it, imagine you're going to put $7 trillion into, and it's not just going to be a factory. It's going to be like power plants, probably fusion to support it and everything else. Um, and if that equipment lasts 10 years, that implies $700 billion in, um, costs, um, in amortized costs. And, you know, imagine you're not playing paying employees. It's just populated with robots. Um, and then if you're generating $1.4 trillion or so in AI hardware sales off the back end, which is our expectation by 2030, um, then you're getting a 10% return on invested capital, which probably roughly makes sense. So uh, we actually, it's actually good that he's starting to figure this out now um, because or else we would hit 2030 and we wouldn't have enough AI chips to power the AI software that we think is gonna make the world much more productive and useful. So it sounds like a big number, but if you're deploying it over Uh, Seven years to get the thing built, it's uh, probably less than 1% of GDP at that point. Uh, And so it's actually a reasonable bet. Uh, And it's something that is um, in a lot of different areas. Actually, we need to be putting capital into disruptive technology to build enough disruptive technology to meet the demand that we'll have. Like if you look at the automakers, they should be like building and committing to larger EV capital investments than they are. And so he's actually kind of looking out and saying, oh, "This is what the world needs," and so I'm going to raise money to do it.
1: Brett, I have uh, two follow up questions. One, can you just set the competitive landscape up for the listeners and viewers? And in that question, help everyone understand what you think the feasibility of you know new AI chip startups. Uh, what is, what does is the feasibility look like for them given? The dominance, the hardware cycles that Nvidia, AMD, and some of the other major players have.
2: Yeah. So two things. One, there's a huge um, potential vulnerability point um, for the world in that um, Taiwan Semi produces pretty much most or all of the advanced chips that power these AI devices. And you know, Taiwan is a um, country with kind of a complicated. Political spot on the globe. Uh, and um, so, if China decided that actually this country, which they believe is part of China, uh, should also be under their operational control, that would be a big geopolitical problem. And so, just having another um, kind of credible spot in the world to produce chips at scale would be useful. And then, one layer up the stack, uh, NVIDIA is also selling the vast majority of AI chips. Uh, and so um, everybody's trying to get in line for NVIDIA chips and, um, AMD is trying to build competitive chips and all of the hyperscalers like Amazon, uh, probably meta, uh, Google are also trying to build, uh, even Tesla are trying to build kind of chips for their own use because of the importance of NVIDIA chips to their future plans. Um, and it's a hard business to, um, kind of be at the leading edge of it requires a lot of capital and a lot of dedicated talent. Um, So net, I think it would be better for everybody if there were more kind of credible chip companies out there. If you look at the history of like startups in um, building compute chips, uh, they almost always die. Uh, And there's a a number that are trying to go after this opportunity, probably a lot of them will die, Uh, but hopefully, you know, one or two make it past the, you know, the extinction point and, and also provide credible competition.
1: And is this really just a hardware problem or is there also a software component to it as well at a certain level? Because my understanding is, you know, the software running um, on top of Nvidia's chips are, you know, far superior, um, CUDA and, and the, you know, kind of coding environment that they offer is another element and, and potential moat. So how do you factor that into, you know, hearing seven we need seven trillion dollars for, you know, an AI chip factory, but then you also have to be uh, building in parallel kind of the software component to really then attract developers.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's you know you can imagine if you have a specific application that you're running on a specific device, then you can figure out exactly what Um, you need to run in terms of an AI model on that device and um, then design a specific chip for it that's very efficient. But if you're trying to build a chip that can be used for all different kinds of AI models and you're not even totally certain which AI workflows are going to be useful, um, then you need a chip with software that allows you to maximize the use of the transistors on that chip no matter which AI architecture you're trying, trying to train. And that's, uh, you know, NVIDIA's advantage basically is you buy a chip and you can maximize the use of that chip almost no matter which kind of like flavor of AI you're going after. Um, and so, you know, conceptually, and this is why it's a hard space to compete. It's you have to design very good hardware and you have to create software frameworks that allow all different kinds of users to maximize the use of that hardware. Um, and so, yes, this, this exercise, and we're going to spend $7 trillion to build chips, also, we'll have to, in parallel, have good software development happen on top of it. Now, like the fact is that AI models themselves are really good at writing software and getting better. And so, conceptually, like that software advantage could erode as people are using AI models to provide a catch up function. To producing enough software frameworks for for the chips, but we'll see.
0: Okay, Brett. The other thing going on on Twitter over the past week, lots of Cisco, NVIDIA comparisons during the bubble. We don't need to comment on stock price so much, right? There's enough threads going on on there. But is this not a classic? Like, here's the metric: is AI compute? It seems like that is the metric this time around. You know, we draw the line out and we say seven trillion. That's what we need. And the reality is not that, or that maybe it's on the right idea, right? It's like the dot com, everything that happened in dot com has come to fruition much later on. Maybe it's that, you know, chips and the software is far more efficient, so you don't need that much. Um, Does this feel like the extrapolation that happens in times of manias?
2: (laughs) Well, he hasn't raised the money yet. So I, I would right. think that, you know, like the rumor of the raise is not yet the the sign of mania. It's when somebody it's, actually commits $7 trillion. To it's it a, it, it's then, a self-fulfilling
0: it. uh, prophecy.
2: Yeah. And, and NVIDIA better hope they are the um, the Cisco of this cycle and not like the global crossing is another way to think about it. So there's, you know, Cisco's um kind of routers were incredibly useful to connecting the world and so they sold a lot of them actually if you look at all of the dot com stocks the best investment um from like uh in terms of rate of compounding was actually Cisco you know over the course of the cycle um and uh but then there was also a bunch of businesses that spun up and kind of debt funded to lay fiber everywhere and the argument was well you know we need to have a globally connected world and uh the, the problem is like having two side-by- side fibers fiber pipelines going across an ocean doesn't the, the neck the second one doesn't provide that much utility and a lot of them raised a lot of debt in order to, to lay these pipes and eventually the pipes all got used um, but not in time for those entities to survive. Uh, and so um, there's there's actually even in bubbles there's you know the concept of a productive mania where it's like oh my gosh we need all this stuff. You raise lots of money into it. Some of the money gets spent before it really should. But then you develop the infrastructure on top of which all of the applications can be built. Uh, and so I think that inevitably, at some point in this cycle, we're going to hit that stage where um, kind of like capital is flowing after things that don't really make sense. Uh, at least, you know, some years in the future, in hindsight. Um, but at the time, people will be so swept up in the excitement that they'll think that it's a good use of capital. Uh, and ultimately, it will prove to be capital that is well used over over some period of time. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, even, even like everybody right now is buying NVIDIA chips to char- train language models. And um, you can imagine, like, having the best language model in the world is clearly a great position. Having the fifth best and having spent billions of dollars to build the fifth best is probably not something you're going to get a return on. Uh, And so there's, there's, and then what happens to that fifth best player? Well, they have a bunch of chips that they've bought that they can't use anymore. So then they kind of sell them to other people. And so there's naturally going to be some sort of inventory cycle that kicks in and, and, and that could get messy. Um, And I think it's very hard though, to judge when that, that, Tipping point occurs or when the kind of like inventory correction occurs. But it's, you know, even though we think this is up and to the right, we don't think it's like this. We think it's like this. Uh, and so the difference between what it feels like here, where people extrapolate up here and here, uh, is uh, from a capital markets perspective, pretty um, severe.
1: Um, Brad, last question uh, on this topic, and it is a slight uh, tangent. Uh, but we just had our big idea summit. You had an analogy. Uh, you talked about this chessboard. Uh, we're talking about technological progress. Can you set that analogy up and spin it so that it fits what we're talking about today?
2: <laughs> sure, because okay. I think it so, does very much apply. Okay, so there's this concept that um, Ray Kurzweil introduced. Or there, there first, there's an allegory where a, a wise advisor. Um, gave good advice to a king. The king said, name your price, I will pay it. And the advisor said, I don't want much. I just want a single grain of rice on the first square of this chessboard. And then for each subsequent square, double the number of grains of rice. And the king said, what a deal, sure. Uh, And began paying it off. Uh, And uh, at first it was painless. One grain, two grains, four grains, eight grains. Uh, And then by the middle of the chessboard, the king was paying, I think it's eight billion, no, four billion, four billion grains of rice, which was almost breaking him. The problem was that he still had another 32 squares to go. And so those incremental 32 doublings, suddenly he's paying, you know, well, in excess of, right. of seven kind of like trillion of grains. grains of sand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so uh, it bankrupts the kingdom and, and the advisor owns the kingdom. And so, Ray Kurzweil, um, who wrote uh, The Singularity is Near, said actually the real action happens in the second half of the chessboard, meaning you can have compounding. And at first, it seems like something you can ignore, then it's something that's meaningful, but it's like, uh, like, you know, very meaningful even, but still something that is just within the realm of imagination. Uh, And then if the compounding continues, then suddenly um, the gains become monumental. And if you look at the history of the integrated circuit, it began about 60 years ago uh, uh, when the integrated circuit was first introduced and Moore's law suggests that for every, Two years, you get a doubling in performance. And so uh, take 60 years, divide in half, 30 30 doublings. We're basically at the halfway point in the chessboard today. Now, our expectations for cost declines in AI is that performance improves not every two years, but every five months. So um, on a forward basis, we're at the halfway point in the chessboard, and then the size of the squares is shrunk by basically 75%. Uh, and so kind of the gains that we expect over the course of this decade, it's almost like the entire second half of the chessboard is compressed into this 10 years. Uh, and so, uh, you know, across all of our technological areas, like the impact is really profound. It's like humanoid robots, which Sam focuses on. We thought that was like a, you know, sometime in the 2030s event, but, um, they, they are software constrained and the software is improving so quickly because of what's happening with AI that, you know, there, there should be units and factories, you know, before the end of the decade. Uh, so, you, and, so you're saying Moore's,
0: Moore's law isn't dead. It's, it's just beginning.
2: Yeah. Well, it's really like we, we, we've laid the groundwork for uh, a further acceleration. And if, if this, you know, People like Sam Altman recognizing, hey, we need to like reinvest in chips. Um, that actually, you know, seven trillion dollars devoted to how to build the best AI chips might actually even um, kind of like compress that two-year rate doubling at the hardware level. Forget the software side, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, That's, you if really, you deploy
0: it effectively, it, right? It, seven it, it, trillion dollar projects. Are no, tend not to be deployed too efficiently.
2: <laughs> yes, I mean I think it's it's a fair question of like even if you were given seven trillion dollars to spend, how would you possibly like motivate kind of the labor and the capital around actually getting that out and in place in in a way that you know was not a complete boondoggle, and that's a actually pretty severe challenge here. Um, and uh, you know I I think we need it. Uh, And so, and so we'll see.
0: All right. So then I'm going to run, we're talking chess boards. We'll pivot to go boards. Uh, I'd say a month ago, you recommended the book, The Maniac by Benjamin Labatute. I don't know if that's the proper pronunciation, (laughs) Um, but I want I want your thoughts. I just finished it this past weekend. It's for context for everyone. You should read it 4.4 on Goodreads, pretty good reviews. Uh, It's three parts centering on you know what happens with the introduction of quantum and if everything you've known as a mathematician scientist changes somewhat overnight and then focuses on uh, john von Neumann and the development of you know recreation and what it takes to recreate not just humans but machines and code and things like that and then ends with uh the story of AlphaGo and AlphaZero. Well, you said it was the best book to help you think about the state of AI today, and it definitely led me to some jumbled thoughts. But what what made you say that? And then you can help me decipher my thoughts.
2: Well, I think that you know, there's this um, kind of idea out there that AI is going to lead to like you know human extinction, and this is something that is like really. A, a terrible thing. Uh, and usually those kind of like ideas are wrapped around basically assertions that are simultaneously unsupportable and also undebatable. Uh, and so I don't find them to be very useful. Whereas I think this book introduced the idea that, you know, basically our um, kind of logical systems um, taken to their extreme actually lead to, you um, Um, not necessarily potential like real problems for humanity, but also like a diminishment of the importance of kind of humans in the equation. And that's the, um, I think, real overarching like scope of the book. Uh, Von Neumann, uh, he introduced the idea of mutually assured destruction, which uh, was actually, as it turned out, a rational reason why kind of like the, Soviets and the U.S. would end up not all killing each other, but kind of like with that as an understanding, that was also the basis by which we built up the huge nuclear arsenal because we had to be able to destroy the entire other side to keep things kind of static. And there was some kind of like introduced risk there, even though it was the rational game theory response. And so I think the same with, it's clear to me, AI systems are going to become decision-making systems sometimes in profound ways. Uh, and the, the fear is not, Hey, these AI systems are going to then like run rogue and take over the world. It's instead like the humans acting rationally will use them to maximize an advantage in a way that may be, you know, extremely dangerous to some people. Uh, and, and I, I think that's kind of like the, um, you know the 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 right thing to do that then like like kills a lot of people is is basically like the major um, uh, kind of like mistake points that we've seen in history and I think this illustrated kind of like how you would end up there
0: interesting what do you think to me right you read it alphago insane this game never can be solved anyone who can understand it right that was eight years ago it felt like, like I remember when we talked about it in brainstorm. Eight years ago, it's like wow, time goes by kind of quickly, right? Now, now we're at this, right? So the goalposts always move, is an interesting one, right? It's like eight years. That's past our. That's past twenty thirty at this point. If we're looking forward, right? A lot's changed. Not that much has changed as well. Um, and then the other piece that really got me thinking is, from just a pure information angle. And it's like, go, played for 3,000 years, Uh, like all of the math and all of that stuff. It's like humans, even in our most researched and all of this, we actually never came up with the optimal strategy, right? right? And so it's like to think that language, which is the main way that we all communicate is like this profound thing, like what's a large language model? it's a machine constrained by humans in how it passes information and it's like what is the next step it's like we we need a the machines and everything will transcend far beyond our ability to pass and understand information and then it will have to like strip out some summary and be like hey here's like a dumbed down bandwidth version that a human can interact with.
2: I think that there is a intrinsic like human bias that we think about the thing that we do is being like it's close to the optimum at least. And mm-hmm. I think in a lot of areas, it's clear that we're actually, or not clear, but we'll soon understand that we're actually not close to the optimum at all. And it'll be because an AI system just flies past that. Uh, and even like if you look at uh, Go players' response to AlphaGo. Go players, human Go players have actually themselves gotten a lot better because they've seen some of the patterns it exploits that previously were thought to be patterns that were kind of like actually wrong strategies in the game. Um, and so there is a degree to which um, these systems ultimately will demonstrate, like at least trajectory towards what the actual efficient frontier is, not the spot that we're, as humanity operating without tools, kind of stuck. Uh, and so I think that's, um, you know, there, there is a, we're going to get a lot better at a lot of things as like humanity, not as individuals, Mm -hmm. um, because of the rate pace at which AI is accelerating. Uh, and that has all kinds of, you know, people feel nervous about that, uh, and perhaps rightfully so. And I think it leads ultimately to, to a world of abundance where it's the things that were previously thought to be, you know, the, the, the. Uh, the software that helps you build the AI chip or that helps the AI chip work um, previously was a really hard thing to develop that took years and years and years and nobody could duplicate, and then will become something that is like easily done and, uh, and kind of so all of the, the puzzle pieces that were previously hard to find will actually be much easier to find and, and will end up this massive expansion of activity and possibility. Uh, so it should be an exciting decade.
0: And so, you know, one, one angle of the, the book or discussion is the immense regret, uh, you know, all of working on these, not AI in particular, but some projects that have uh, power that leads to death or destruction. Um, obviously, that plays into kind of the AI fear out there. What do you make of that? It's gonna happen anyway. So embrace
2: well, not only it. that, I think I think approaching approaching systems from a perspective of fear, at least within the political context, often ends up with like actual regulatory or governance impulses that don't do anything to allay the actual risk, um, but maybe cut off the the positive possibilities. Like uh, think about kind of like the splitting the atom and and what we got out of that. Well, we got uh, you know, world-killing amount of nuclear weapons, and actually a relatively small amount of nuclear energy. Uh, and we got the small amount of nuclear energy because so p- people were so freaked out by the nuclear weapons that they basically kind of had a political spot- response to nuclear energy that prevented its development. So, kind of the the regulatory and fear-based response to that really profound innovation uh, did nothing to allay the risk reasonably, uh, but it sure cut off a lot of um you know much better human activity we could have had uh and so my main concern with like the attempts to regulate ai uh you know if if you impose a set of rules on commercial actors as to what they can do with an ai system that's not going to stop you know a nation state from trying to exploit these to sow disinformation and adversaries uh, political environments and it's not going to stop them trying to use it to guide their weapons uh, and so you're just going to kind of like shove the rate pace of advance into the most nefarious actors. Uh, and so actually, I think a world that is safer is a world that has more open source AI efforts proceeding as quickly as possible, uh, rather than vice versa.
0: Great. And I'll just throw in there, right, there's the BG2 podcast. There's was their first episode, but they brought up an interesting study and it was right, the regulators... Uh, when regulation is introduced, the incumbents do extremely well. And that's almost exactly what you're saying there. But we need to shift topics. And Ali, thank you for joining us. And your topic that you discussed was, why are drug prices so much higher in the US than everywhere else? What brought that to the forefront? And what's going on there?
3: Yeah, so uh was my topic for brainstorm but definitely is a topic that's just circulating in the US and gaining more and more importance. Um this came up because there was a committee hearing on Thursday which we listened to the full 3 hours. Um so on Thursday there were three CEOs that spoke um for these large cap pharmas uh to note they willingly testified, um, and this was in front of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. So that was Chris Borner, who's the CEO of BMOI, which is bristol Meyer Squibb, uh, Robert Davis, the CEO of Merck, and then the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Um, and so, like you mentioned, the discussion was really centered around why the United States is paying more uh, globally for drugs, Um, and essentially they named a blockbuster drug from each of the companies, so Eliquis, Keytruda, and Stellara. So just to give an example of some of the differences, so um, for BMY, for Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eliquis is a blood thinner. Uh, it's important because it reduces the risk of stroke, and uh, it's 7000 annually in the U.S. But if you were in Japan, you'd pay around $900, 940 uh, In Canada, you'd pay 900 Germany, $770. Uh, the United Kingdom, uh, it's around 760 And in France, it's around $650. Uh, so pretty striking differences. Um, Bernie Sanders pointed out uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb's global sales of Eliquis from 2012 to 2022 in the US were $34.6 billion uh, versus $22.5 billion for the rest of the world combined. Um, obviously, there are reasons why in the US we pay more. Uh, one of the reasons is we get it in multiple lines of therapy. We typically get it quicker. Um, we typically get better access to drugs. And so those are some of the things that some of the CEOs highlighted.
0: And doesn't the U.S. do more research? Like, we aren't, do, aren't we generating a lot of the drugs that get to use, be used globally?
3: Yeah, we do a lot of the clinical trials in the U.S. Um, the FDA governs a lot of those trials. Um, regulations are expensive. <laughs> Regulatory is expensive. Um But uh, a lot of those arguments didn't work so well, um, at least with Bernie Sanders, because there was an argument that, um, from an outcomes basis, the rest of the world has better health outcomes. And and we published a chart on that uh, on Twitter. I think Brett may have posted it as well. I know I posted it. And and I think the end result was really that none of the CEOs really agreed to cut their drug prices to match uh, the lower costs in some of the other countries, but uh, Robert Davison and Chris Boner did say that they would welcome cheaper options once they lose exclusivity on some of their top-selling drugs. Typically large pharma companies can do other things to extend patent life, and so maybe they will be... um, more lenient when it comes to losing some of their exclusivity on these drugs.
1: Ali, you also mentioned in your piece that the US drug market is not as regulated as some of these other countries you highlighted, and that there's also this toll taking process going on. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? And also, I'm curious, I don't think you mentioned this, but is there a role or what does the role of insurance play, if at all, in the cost of drug pricing in the US? Because I'm assuming we also yeah. have, you know, different insurance, uh, a different insurance landscape than at least Canada in in this respect.
3: Yeah, very different insurance landscape. Um, so that article that you're referring to that I talked about was from the Washington Post about why drug prices are so high in the U.S. and they talked about sort of a lack uh, of um, negotiations. That is changing, of course. Um, because we are working with the IRA, um, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is looking to negotiate Medicare pricing, so that landscape will change. Um, We know that we have the first 10 drugs that were identified, and um, letters actually just went out, I think it was last week for the first uh, negotiations, and then um, the pharma companies have... I think it's um, a month or so to get back in terms of um, their respective um, uh, responses to, to uh, the government. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, but one of the things that was highlighted in terms of how we're less regulated, um, there was a survey that came out and one in five adults in the US um, said they failed to complete a prescribed course of medicine um, because of cost. That was definitely highlighted um, during the the Senate hearing as well. Um, And the figure for that was one in 10 in Germany, Canada, and Australia. Um, And so I I think we're just looking at how do we uh, figure out a good insurance system where drugs can get um, the cost that um, they can accumulate both from an investor perspective, they recoup their um, cash on investment, but also that patients can afford it. And um, we do some work with an organization called No Patient Left Behind, which essentially looks at how do you recoup costs on investment from an investor perspective for large cap pharma, but then also how do you ensure that um, patients can actually afford uh, to pay for the medicines. And a lot of these conversations are happening at ARC because a medicine was approved, I think we've actually talked about it on on this podcast before, but Kaschevi, which was um, a Vertex CRISPR Therapeutics medicine for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, and it costs uh, $2 million, but that is one dose that should last you for a lifetime. And so the cost of that and other medicines that are these innovative medicines um, is gonna be really important to figure out how the insurance company will pay for it. And basically what happens is that the company has to go out and figure out with the insurance companies how do we pay for this? So you know, there are different models, but like a value-based care model seems likely where basically as long as the patient is um, getting value from the therapy, uh, then the, the insurance company will pay X amount per year. And so those are all negotiated and you can look in um, some of the, the financial documents for the companies to see um, which companies are negotiating and also uh, how much they're getting.
1: And Allie, my last question for you is: There, there is some interest from, I would say, some big tech moguls out there. The one that mm-hmm. comes to mind is Mark Cuban, and yep. uh, I believe his company is called Cost Plus Drugs. What is your mm-hmm. take on that approach? Do you think it's feasible, or are they just going after you know a lower end uh, market? I'm assuming not every drug is available on this website. Um, is it is it possible that over time this could be a viable business model?
3: Yeah, I think it could be very viable. So the thing about Mark Cuban's company is it's a generics company. So it still doesn't apply to the drugs that have an exclusivity Mm -hmm. or a patent exclusivity, meaning that if Bristol-Myers Squibb owns the right and the patents to a certain drug, uh, it wouldn't be possible for another company to just create a generic for it. But what it could mean, and especially with some of the resources that he's gotten, if he has significant manufacturing capabilities and if he's quick and he can create these drugs really cheaply, which we know that generics can do that, then I think the business model stands. He does make a certain profit. It's just that the profit is a specific, is a much smaller margin um, than you'd make from a pharmaceutical company that had to spend, you know, one point one to two billion and ten years developing the drug, uh, not accounting for the failures that they had to do in order to find that one. Drug that was um, commercialized. So I think this is a viable market. It's not possible for every company to just focus on generics because we need to create new, innovative drugs. Um, and I don't know how many drugs you know will go generic just being the nature of new innovative therapies, I think some of them are really difficult to manufacture. And so I think, you know, we'll have to see how that sort of landscape evolves. But I think, uh, I think as you know, they're taking a small profit, it's going to go to more patients. And as long as there's accessibility there, um, and they put that in place, which it seems like that's what they're doing. uh, I think it's a super interesting business model.
1: Okay, Ali, thank you so much.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. No weird questions today, Sam. I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. I, uh, do you actually think prices are going to come
0: down? Is this just political? Like, the, we're coming up to election. There's going to be a lot of noise.
3: At the end of the day, are people going to pay less? I was expecting, like, Pokemon or, <laughs> like, Vision GoPro. I don't know. <laughs> um, but... Um, Look, I think prices need to be feasible for patients to afford and get access to the care that they need. One thing that was on um, the committee hearing as well was the talk about like GoFundMe pages. So one question that Bernie Sanders asked was, are you willing to forego any salary increases to top bi- biopharma CEOs um, until there are no uh, GoFundMe pages for cancer therapies? And, and of course, they said no. Um, but in, right, but in you
0: a, know, Bernie's just out there creating GoFundMe pages.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. There was an article today, even about like how. GoFundMe pages are being encouraged um, to support your healthcare expenses, and uh, I don't know, for me, like maybe coming from working at a a cancer research hospital, thinking about someone not being able to afford their cancer treatment, and then figuring out how to, you know, choose which expense they pay that month or choose, um, you know, to do a GoFundMe uh is is pretty terrible but i think there are several factors at play and so as long as we create an environment in which you know prices are affordable and we also have to think about the fact that if it's a curative therapy and it's a one dose therapy like a two million dollar price tag sounds egregious but um if you think about that over a patient's lifetime Uh, we did in our big ideas deck last year that typically a patient spends just on their direct costs for sickle cell disease over a million dollars. And this doesn't even count for quality of life uh, improvements. And so, um, you know, the sticker price really has to be thought of in a sort of longitudinal way in which you're kind of thinking about like, okay, this is for a whole patient's life. It's not just for, you know, one dose. And then that patient doesn't have to go to the hospital and get blood transfusions all the time. Like, doesn't that make that person's life so much better? Okay, sorry to get back into it, Sam. I thought you were going to be like, what's your favorite, I don't know, like, thing to cook? I don't know. I thought it would be a a random question.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no silly questions. But thank you for joining us, Allie. And we'll see everyone next week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.